let's break down the Site Reliability Engineering book from 2016 and see if it's still relevant to your context. We are continuing our reactions to the Site Reliability Engineering book from 2016. It's a great reliability resource, but it's not a blueprint. You can make it relevant with context, and that's what we're going to do here. We'll cover five passages from the book in each episode to give you a viewpoint that will help you contextualize the book to your situation. Because you need to create your own approach and not copy what's possible with Google's billion dollar SRE budget. In this episode, we'll cover the importance of monitoring, how money plays a role in resource decisions, the unfortunate passage about humans adding latency to incidents, and more. Sebastian Vietz is director of SRE at a Fortune 500, and I, Ash Patel, am an independent SRE advocate. You're listening to the SRE Path Podcast. We're continuing our conversation about chapter one of the Site Reliability Engineering book from 2016. And we've got five more passages to cover. Let's move on to the first passage for this episode. Monitoring is one of the primary means by which service owners keep track of a system's health and availability. And I would agree with that because monitoring is one of the ways you get alerting. You actually learn if a service is down or if there's an issue with a system component. Is there anything more to this, Sebastian? No, I think that statement still holds true today, very much so. I think there have been some evolutions when it comes to monitoring. I think monitoring now, one or a few people in the industry argue is part of something bigger that we now call observability. But at face value, just that statement still holds very true today. You want to know what's happening within your systems, within your software. You got to instrument it. You got to analyze that data that you have emitted and then either alert based on some of the data that you're seeing or at the very least dashboard it to a certain degree. Yeah, there's not much else to say to this. I think that's still very valid today. So that's definitely something that you can take. And then I feel like this is table stakes for SREs, right? I would call them pillars, right? Uh, the whole observability mon monitoring aspect of the job is one of the pillars of SREs and I don't see it going away anytime soon. Absolutely. I guess the one thing they do need to be aware of at all times and for people and teams and organizations bringing in more advanced monitoring practices is that they need to be aware of alert fatigue. That is a ongoing issue amongst SREs. Yeah, that's certainly one. And the other one I would argue is we have to be very cognizant as SRE practitioners that not everyone is equally educated, equipped, and interested in that topic, right? Especially on the education front, I keep realizing time and time again, every time I change teams or companies, that there's still more software engineers out there that know nothing about it beyond writing a log to a console. Like, that's the extent to which they know how to look inside the code that they're executing, right? Like they've never heard of a structured log. They have never heard of an observability backend or analytics on top of observability, data, signals, telemetry. They certainly have never implemented a trace or 
don't know when to use a metric. So we need to be careful and not fool ourselves as practitioners that this is widespread knowledge because in my last 10 years, I have enough evidence to tell you that's not the case. Absolutely. I, I can see the practical evidence showing that too. But we could keep talking about this for hours. We don't have that yeah. time. We're going to move on to yeah. the next thing. The next passage is efficient use of resources is important anytime a service cares about money. <laughs> money is super important to every organization, even the nonprofit ones. So we got to be efficient with our resources. And I guess that's where FinOps comes in as well these days. Yeah. I mean, this is, again, one of those statements in the book still holds true today, probably even more so than ever before, as still more and more companies migrate to the cloud and run more of their systems in the cloud. And depending on how they do it there, cost control is really critical and is really difficult too right? Because depending on the cloud provider, they make it easier or harder to keep control over your cost or have good insight into how much you have spent or how much you are about to spend. You know, not everyone is equally good at forecasting or projecting out how much you're going to be spending potentially in the next months or the next six months based on the consumption that you had in your previous six months or in the six months last year around the same time. You know, there are big differences in terms of visibility, but even people that are still operating in traditional data center setups, right? You know, sometimes referred to as on-prem, cost for them is equally important, right? I mean, cost of living has gone up everywhere and that affects businesses and industry just as much. So running a data center today is probably by a factor of N more expensive than it was 10 years ago. So even if you still run your own data center or run your workloads within your own parts of a data center, you need to be concerned about how much that is costing you. And as you add more workload or more products and you need to expand your footprint, you probably want to make sure you squeeze out the last bit of efficiency out of what you already have before you start shopping for new stuff, you know, for new compute system or storage system. Yeah. Super true. And you set the right discipline that is most interested in solving some of the problems in that space. FinOps, lots of good literature by now, lots still to be done and to be learned and to be shared across the industry. But yeah, holds true, very topical, very current. And I see there's still a big evolution in, in that particular niche space. Interesting thing is, well, the more concerning thing is that there are a lot of influences on LinkedIn influencing executives on how to make strategic decisions about this. So they go, hey, look, cloud is expensive. Let's go on-prem because the guy at 37 Signals said that that works for them. There's a big difference between your company. <laughs> I guess 37 Signals can be like Google in this aspect, right? Just because they said they can do it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to pull it off with the resources you have. 37 Signals has over 30 years of experience in software at the very ground level for the CTO to talk about all the different aspects of the hardware they use, how they actually implement it, how they maintain it, should give you an idea that this guy is very hands-on. And CTOs in most organizations don't have time to think of things like that. It's going to be a tough ride for those who just take those words for what they are and just jump into that, no, we're doing on-prem. We're buying a data center. We're building a data center. 
it's gonna be tough. Yeah, no, but it's exactly true. It's the same fallacy that happened with the books that we're talking about, right? Where people taking the book verbatim or taking as some form of marching order, you shall do exactly as they say in the Asher ebook, right? Which I don't think the authors had ever intended for that to happen, but it's a bit of an unfortunate side effect or consequence. Apply some critical thought, please, you know, with everything that is being said about the book or some of the practitioners that potentially have made bad experiences in the cloud and maybe have overspent in the cloud and maybe are having done the homework, the capacity planning in order to articulate a use case where they're saying, if we are buying our own hardware with the skills that we have within our organization and the experience for our use case, going back to an on-prem in data center model makes financial sense. And then if the proof points that come later tell whoever did that move that you did the right thing, then all the power to you. Good on you, right? You've done basically, I think what FinOps practitioners would advocate for, be prudent, have some level of control over how much you're spending and what you're spending it on. I think the trap that a lot of people have gone into by moving their compute systems or just their general technology ecosystems into the cloud they have forgotten about the fact that cost control is still a thing, you know, <laughs> even yeah. in the cloud. It's not even in the cloud. It's especially in the cloud because it's so much easier to spend money there, money that you potentially haven't forecasted or haven't accounted for in your annual budgets. So you can't just go in blindly there and say, okay, now that I'm in the cloud, I don't have to worry about that aspect anymore. It couldn't be farther from the truth, but somehow that message didn't come across when companies were talking with other companies about digital transformation and moving all their stuff into the cloud. Some companies probably would have been better off never moving to the cloud and staying in their own on-prem ecosystem in the first place. Well, you know, they don't talk about it much, would love to see uh, some that actually stood the test of time and said, no, nah, not moving into the cloud. I want to see how this plays out. I'm still convinced we can do it operationally and more cost effective in our organization with what we got in continuously improving our own data center and how we utilize what we build there. I would love to hear a story of someone that has a story like this to tell because I hope and I would think they're out there. See, the thing is that I would actually sit down with my team and work out our workloads work out the numbers of what we expect on normal operating circumstances. What about when we have spikes? For example, maybe Black Friday for e-commerce as an example. And then I would actually work out what are the costs of doing this in the cloud? What are the costs of us buying hardware to do this? It's not rocket science. I mean, you, you do this in so many other situations in your life. And I don't know why you don't apply this or don't want to apply this to your job, right? Whatever. Say, for example, your kid wants to do a holiday party in a certain location, right? Or they want to go and go trampoline jumping and you have two providers nearby, right? So you check out their prices and you check out these prices. You figure out how many kids want to go. You figure out how big the cake needs to be, how many drinks you need. And then you do a cost comparison. You know, if they're somewhat equal in terms of the services that they provide, you choose the cheaper one. But somehow we forgot to do that math and we said, oh, 
but this one looks really flashy. It has more neon signs on the outside, and you get these really great looking cups and these purple straws, and the ice cubes are triangular in terms instead of square, and that's where we're going there, but totally forgetting about that you pay 20%, 25% more to go in there. But do the kids care that they have more fun in, in that place or the other? I don't know. <laughs> it's hard but, you know, to say. Yeah, at least doing that math, right? Like the, yeah. do your due diligence. And again, don't just get blinded by shiny objects. And again, cloud, digital transformation, all these buzzwords, sometimes called shiny objects, you know, and really blinding people and they just go, they go with the flow. I mean, sounds attractive, looks cool. Is it better for my organization? What problem again did that solve? Very true. Let's move on to the next passage, which is a little more about how you deal with emergency response or incident response, as we would call it. Humans add latency. Even if a given system experiences more actual failures, a system that can avoid emergencies that require human intervention will have higher availability than a system that requires hands-on intervention. And I think this is alluding to, hey, you better have self-healing patterns built in or routines built in. And you don't want to have to rely on humans to solve every little thing because it still takes time. There's latency, right? They're not going to take seconds. They're going to take at least, at the earliest, they're going to take minutes and it could be longer. Yeah, it's and time you, to mitigate, right? That you're trying to keep as short as possible. I mean, Kudos to all the humans. Uh, kudos to all the people that do incident response and do their very best every single night, every single day, every single weekend to keep things up and running. Um, we love you. But there's true. Pardon me. We love humans. <laughs> we do. We love humans. Absolutely do. Yeah, we are. We are big fans of humans here. <laughs> but we are also big fans of automation. The one thing I will say is. Of course, I mean, as much as you don't need to be woken up at night, don't try to, you know, work your way out of these nighttime shifts, right? Don't get paged, but it's easier said than done, right? This whole idea around incident automation is a really tough play. It can be really difficult because again, our systems have not gotten any easier, right? They're the interdependency of systems, the complexity of systems, the coupled nature of systems usually make it not particularly straightforward to just put in some form of automation in order to resolve a given circumstance or incident. And I don't know the statistics on this, but from my personal observation and experience, most teams that I've ever worked with, they're doing pretty well. They recognize when something happens repeatedly and they try to get rid of it, right? But it's not like every incident is the same and over weeks and months and years, people are just putting up with it and not try to do something about it. But sometimes the nature of the incidents is, well, oftentimes the nature of the incident is unpredictable. And even the ones that are tougher to solve, they last longer or they repeat more often because of the complex and coupled nature of some of those systems that we're dealing with today. Hey, it seems like you're enjoying this episode. You've already listened to 15 minutes. Can you do us a favor and share it with your friends and colleagues? 
really helps us get the good word out on SRE. Those things are really tough to automate. It's not just like throwing a little script together or, you know, as much as we would like to, it's not just a matter of turning your server on and off again and then, or, you know, like killing your pod and then spinning up a new one. If it was always that easy, it would have been done already or people would have done it already. But, you know, a lot of incidents, they're not that simple. They're not that easy. I suppose it's saying that there are people who probably are not seeing that as an obvious thing to restart the pod or create a new one. So maybe that's what it's alluding to, to say for the simpler things that don't need humans to investigate and start war rooms in Slack, you should be having self-healing routines for those basic things where you could run a script. For example, your log file is oversized, the storage limits hit. What do you do? You have a built-in script that deletes older log files. A lot of people don't do this. They just wait for that incident to happen. They go in yep. and jump in and they manually delete log files. I've heard people yep. do this. Yep, been there, done that. <laughs> exactly that. And then built a log aggregator in order to solve the pro problem, you know, just yep. or throw more storage at it. You know, that's <laughs> that's what a log aggregator gives you. But, but it's true, like have some form of policy in place that is scripted that, you know, how many times do you need to go back to the logs from the last month? Probably never. So what are you keeping them for? Just get rid of them and uh, never run into this problem again. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this passage is not anti-human. It's just very, there are things you don't need to respond to if the computer can sort itself out. The yeah, system can fix I think it's pro uh, it's pro automation, right? That's really yeah. I think what it boils down to. Automate as much stuff away as you can possibly do, you know, and really do spend the time on those activities because they just keep you sane. They keep your team sane, yourself, you know, who likes getting up in the middle of the night, half awake, half asleep, trying to sometimes solve something as simple as, yeah, like you said, <laughs> remove a log file. You would think in the middle of the night at 3 a.m., that was a really stupid exercise. Why? Why did I have to wake up for this? You know. But the funny thing is, then in, in, in some companies I've seen it, there's no follow-through on this then the, the next day. Look, the, the pain was felt, the pain was felt multiple times, and yet the issue does not get addressed. People are still getting up that, at 3 a.m., <laughs> That's the really, really mind-boggling part. Did 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 still manage to focus on something else then the next day, even though you could tell them, you know, you're going to get woken up next night again, right? Yeah. So yeah. Doesn't yeah. Still doesn't click. It's just like stating the obvious still doesn't help. <laughs> well, I'm glad we emphasized this particular passage <laughs> in more detail. All right, next. All right, next one. SRE has found that roughly. 70% of outages are due to changes in a live system. Best practices in this domain use automation to accomplish implementing progressive rollouts. And this is that whole release engineering aspect that is a big part for you. Huge, huge aspect of the work that you do with your teams. So I'm going to let you jump right into it. I mean, this this whole passage, and I think there's there's good literature, if you are actually in release engineering, if you are in some form of a lease engineering group or in a, in a DevOps team that tries to build 
you know, pipelines for other software engineering teams that packages code for you and moves it through the stages of development, staging into production. Be obviously smart about it, right? There are different mechanisms today which allow you to to safely introduce change into production. You know, blue-green deployments, canary deployments, the whole aspect of feature flagging and then exposing your new change to X percent of your customer base, even go as far if you want to really secure. I know in financial services that still happens today that people deploy in a form of a maintenance environment. Basically, they're pushing things into a production environment, but that happens to be in a maintenance mode. So it's not externally accessible to customers. So if you really want to make sure now you throw a bunch of product folks at it or a bunch of testers, you you give it a good shakedown. If you're really super paranoid and you haven't automated some of, some of those things, and then you, if you have a certain level of confidence, then you open up that environment, that region, that availability zone, that part of your ecosystem, you open it up for actual real-time customer traffic. And you should have a fairly high degree of confidence that what you introduced works. And if by any chance you figure out as part of any of these approaches that things are not working, right, you can pull the plug. You can basically say, nah, there's, there's an issue here. We need, to, we need to shut the gates. Let's not route any more traffic here or let's roll back the change altogether. You know, pull it out of production again, look at it again in depth, figure out what went wrong and try again another time. But that statistic is still mind-blowing. 70% of outages are because of changes to live systems. That tells me maybe it's changed. Maybe it's changed in the last eight years. But maybe it's also saying that there are still some places that are having this issue. If Google's having this issue, it's most definitely likely that companies with less resources in this space are definitely experiencing this issue, especially in release engineering aspects. It's concerning. I wish they would read. I think one resource I think would be a really good opener for them would be Martin Powell's writings. Like you said, blue-green deployments, et cetera, et cetera. He writes a lot about these. Well, he wrote a lot about these 10, 15 years ago. I think they're still relevant, more relevant today than maybe even back then when yep. software hadn't eaten the world yet. <laughs> We'd love it if you can give the podcast a rating. Five stars only. Just kidding, but a five-star rating makes a huge difference to how people perceive a podcast and it keeps us motivated to produce more episodes. If you have any other feedback, feel free to email ash at srepath.com. Yeah, and I mean, again, going back to like this whole idea of globalization, right? Like you putting something out there today, potentially in different regions of the world, or, or just the fact that it's accessible to different regions of the world. You know, what used to be a nine to five business is now by default a 24-7 business just because we have globalized, right? It's accessible as soon as you flip the switch. So the way you launch again, it doesn't matter if you're doing it during the day, during the night, on the weekend. Somebody's already in Monday. Somebody is already awake in some other part of the world, you know, especially in globalized systems. Like that's why it, 
people that will argue you shouldn't be deploying during the day or doing <laughs> whatever, doing lunch hours or on a Friday. I don't think it matters all that much. You, I think you're missing the point, all right? If your system is exposed to the whole world, you, you need to find safe ways to deploy whenever. Yes, absolutely. And I feel like this is a solved problem. I mean, there's good literature out there. There are lots of companies that can help you with these aspects, right? You don't have to reinvent the wheel. God forbid, just don't do that. You know, that there's enough out there where if you really don't know, if you don't have the skill in your company, at least for a period of time, get some help. There's nothing wrong with this. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. That I find one of the worst ideas or notions in a lot of companies. Everybody thinks they can do it better or they can they need to do it differently. And I want to argue 95% of the companies, you don't. You're no different than the other 94%. You know, you have the same problem that you're trying to solve and somebody has already solved it for you. That's where this whole spiel comes in. We should talk a lot more with each other. You know, we should exchange more of how we've done certain things and learn from one another. Because in these aspects, we all share, right? Even if we're competitors, right? Like we're not trying to compete on the technology ecosystems that we are building. We're trying to compete on the products that we're trying to sell to our customers. So let the practitioners that are trying to build you the best possible product, whatever shape or form that may take for your company, let them exchange thoughts with each other. Because guess what? You're only going to be better for it because somebody is going to learn something in the process that then you can apply at your shop, at your company. And in turn, you might just get a little bit more reliable. 100% with you on that. I've spoken with a few companies and they're like, no, our SRE is a secret. I'm like, okay, cool. You do your thing. We'll move on to the companies that do want to actually improve and work more effectively. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the next and final passage. Demand forecasting and capacity planning can be viewed as ensuring that there is sufficient capacity and redundancy to serve projected future demand with the required availability. Whoa, that was a loaded sentence. I'm still trying to <laughs> interpret what, like I got capacity planning. Read again, read it again. Demand forecasting and capacity planning can be viewed as ensuring that there is sufficient capacity and redundancy to serve projected future demand, the required availability. Essentially, what it's trying to say is capacity planning is a must if you don't want traffic spikes to take you down. Ah, oh, geez. There's, remember, this is the reason why I told you we need to actually do this teardown because a lot of it's written in a way that if people are trying to read it, it's written like a postgrad thesis. But it's, it, it's been, the book has been written by very smart people that know what they're talking about. And for them, consuming a, a statement like this seems like you and I talking at the water cooler, right? They just get it. But if your educational material becomes so abstract, not by its nature, but by the fact you're trying to teach people that have no idea what you're talking about, right? You, <laughs> This could be one of those statements where you lose people, right? You you have to think so hard or really, you know, tear this sentence apart word by word in order to make some sense of it. But 
you said it, right? Like it, it has to do with, you know, you want to have enough capacity in your ecosystem in order to service your customers. However many there might be, you, you might want to think about this when you're in a business that, that is seasonal, right? Like my business, for example, there's a big seasonal influx when students go back to university in September, right? Seasonal influx, need to plan for it. Same happens January, February when they come back to school after Christmas break. There are businesses that run promotions, so you better be ready for this promotion when you're putting it out there if the demand is high. There's Amazon doing its Prime Day. What do you think? They're not preparing for Prime Day with a very, in a very particular way with a very specialized team or teams even planning out every single minute of these days and making sure there's enough capacity within their system in order to handle all the customers that are trying to serve on those days. I will say, though, from my personal experience, again, I saw that right around the time when people started to move away from on-prem and more towards the cloud. It is one of those lost art forms in our industry, capacity planning and even performance management or, or performance forecasting, right? I want to almost put it into the same ballpark as cost control, like the whole FinOps idea. Uh, as well, because that is impacted too. You know, if you don't understand the capacity your system requires, especially in the cloud, especially if you have seasonality to it, right? And especially with elastic workloads and the serverless world, especially, right? But even elastic workloads that you control yourself, right? Your payment model is different in the cloud for those things. If you're not planning for capacity increases, if you're not planning for performance spikes, you may end up overutilized or not sufficient capacity at all. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you might also have too much of something that you're never going to need, right? So over-provisioned you are, right? You, you're not or you're scaled out, but you forgot to scale back in when the demand has dropped now. And for me, all of those considerations and aspects, they feel a little bit like a, like a lost art. I don't see too many people talk about it, work around it, work with it, you know, and try to understand these aspects a little better. So there's a gap, I think. I think we can both agree that Capacity planning is critical to the work that site reliability engineers do. They're one of the key people behind making sure this happens. Okay, so that wraps up our teardown of chapter one of the site reliability engineering book. Hope you found it useful. And if you have any feedback of how we could improve our teardowns, we're always ready to listen. Yes, thank you, everyone. Hey, you listened all the way to the end of the episode. That's great. I hope you learned something amazing. And if you want to share what you learned, feel free to share it on LinkedIn, wherever you hang out, and be sure to follow the podcast for more episodes like this.